You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The US and the EU work towards a free trade deal or something like it. The Taliban struggle to appreciate the irony of their government of Afghanistan being undermined by theocratic fanatics. And has President Emmanuel Macron succeeded in getting his fellow citizens to work two years longer? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Tessa Shishkovitz and Philippe Malier, will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City, and we'll introduce a new addition to Monocle 24's lineup of fine programming. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile magazine, and by Philippe Malier, Professor of French and European Politics at University College London. Hello to you both. Hello, good evening. Hello, Andrew. I mean, this is an exciting balance we have this evening. We are we are two-thirds continental sophistication to one-third Australian oik. That's true. I could have said guten Abend. <laughs> you could have, and I wouldn't have understood a word of it. Um, <laughs> but we will be starting with European-related issues, because listeners with memory stretching back seven or so years will be able to recall a time when a fabulous trade deal between the United States and the United Kingdom, newly freed from continental shackles, was going to be easy, swift, inevitable, irresistible, and I'll just check, no, it still hasn't happened. However, in good news for American and European business and British fans of mordant irony, the US and a European Union newly freed from British obduracy are expected to agree tomorrow to start negotiations on a new US-EU free trade deal. Um, Tessa, first of all, how big a thing could this be? This is potentially huge, isn't it? I think there's, it's hope. Mm. This uh, free trade deal and its uh, agreement, and it's not there at all. And it's an attempt also by the EU to come back to the table with the US, taking uh, away uh, a lot of um, business in Europe by the very, very intelligently structured Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden introduced. And now Ursula von der Leyen is struggling to counter with a Green Deal industrial plan that is very difficult to put through with so many different interests in Europe, as we know. And I think that's the big story. And the, and the free trade agreement would be great, but it's um, always the same. It takes a long time to uh, agree on things like that. In, indeed. Philippe, Tessa may have already partially answered this question with the reference there to all the different competing interests in Europe, but is it actually weird that there hasn't been an EU-US free trade deal before now? This this won't be that, but this will, this is being billed as something that will be very, very like a free trade deal. Yes, I suppose that will surprise lots of observers, that how come isn't there a trade deal yet set up between the two major economic blocks in the world. And I think the EU is, uh, of course, uh, was uh, set up in the first place to be a free trade zone and then to to, to strike all the deal with other, other regions in the world. And I think probably the political angle and reading of the situation I, I would make is that it hasn't happened yet because beware of American protectionism. Mm. And that's always the, the old story. Uh, 
The US is by no means a socialist economy as we know, but it is also an economy which, you know, whatever the, the type of uh, administration you get, Republican or, or Democratic, they are quite good at protecting their, their national interest. And uh, that's what Trump did. That's what uh, Biden is doing as well. So it's not a done deal. You know, they will have to be very convincing because uh, it's shows one thing probably is that the EU has been, uh, has showed over time a kind of ideological naivety, I would say. You know, remember 20, 30 years ago, the key thing was, you know, uh, opening the borders, free trade, and uh, and of course that in some cases has hit uh, national uh, national firms. And that probably in the UK also, I would suspect, has fed a kind of left-wing Brexit. You know, mm. people thinking, you know, we're losing jobs and etc. So that that's, that's uh, I think, a very, a very handy uh, reminder that, you know, some very capitalistic economies can be uh, protectionist. Well, indeed so. Uh, Donald Trump was not the first. He merely said the quiet part out loud on that front. I mean, is, is there, uh, Tessa, a natural disadvantage that the EU has in interacting with the US here? Obviously, comparably economically powerful, but there is that thing where ultimately the United States, divided though it is, negotiates as one country, whereas the EU is condemned to being the sum of its parts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see this now at the proposals that the EU Commission puts out for this Green Deal in order to counterbalance the subsidies that the US will give to all these companies, like Volkswagen is thinking of not building a plant in Eastern Europe, but in the US, because you get like up to eight, nine billion euros uh, or dollars in subsidies. While in the EU, it's much more difficult to set up these very generous schemes that Biden was able to get through his uh, parliament in comparison to what it means in Europe to come up with a plan like this and get it through 27 parliaments. And now what you saw today, for example, coming out of Brussels is already everyone saying Germany will never accept these new proposals for the new Green Deal in its small print because it means, for example, that poorer countries in the EU will get um, easier subsidies for Green Deal building plants, getting battery factories going and all these kind of things. As rich, richer countries, so Germany is saying like, oh, this is not exactly what we want because we happen to be one of the richer countries. <laughs> so you see how difficult these structures go. And so there is always this moment when the American, big American might is the power of this big continental economy with really being felt in Europe. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, when Ursula von der Leyen comes to see Joe Biden tomorrow in the White House, there's a lot of common interest at the moment and a lot of interest also on the side of Joe Biden to have Europe in place as a partner, not only in the war uh, in the Ukraine, but also with China and the big, big trade difficulties that are coming up with China are better being tackled together between America and, and the EU. So they have both different cards in their hands and they can play, if they play them well, there could be at least positive signal in coming out of this. I mean, Philip, we, we do need to acknowledge that a US-UK trade deal is probably not uh, the demented fantasy it was maybe a month ago on this side of the deal that now appears to have been done with Northern Ireland, which removes a massive objection from the United States' point of view, Joe Biden's point of view in particular. But 
Is there an argument, do you think, that Brexit has somehow reinvigorated the EU, that perhaps it finds it now easier to manoeuvre without the UK forever demanding exemptions and special treatment and just generally getting in the way of things? And and, and has it sort of found, I guess, a, a, a renewed determination to make the thing work since one of its biggest economies left? I think that's a good uh, question and a good point because, yes, I think the effects of Brexit as I see them are twofold. One of them is probably as uh, put an end, at least for the time being, to any other European countries, member states, to sort of advocate an exit from the EU. You know, the, there were lots of talks on the left and, and far right about a Frexit, and that's absolutely over. No one discusses the point. So that's the first effect. The second effect is probably yes. In the same way as Putin's aggression on Ukraine has strengthened NATO, which was seen mm. as a kind of a, a sort of organization in disarray. It's well, brain, the, brain dead according yes, to France's absolutely. own president. You could argue that in the same way Brexit has sort of uh, uh, sort of urged the uh, member states, you know, to to sort of uh, to get their act together and probably to 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 try, you know, to notably to strike deals with other major economic blocks, and that's what they're trying to do. So yes, in a, in a way, that's one of the paradoxical effects of of uh, Brexit. Well, let's move along and look at Afghanistan, where the Taliban's promises of bringing law and order to bear on the country they took back would appear to be a work in progress. Earlier today, Mohammad Dawood Muzamil, the Taliban governor of Balkh province in Afghanistan's north, was killed along with one other person by a suicide bomber in his office in Mazari Sharif. There has been no claim of responsibility as of this broadcast, but many are reflecting on Muzamil's record of harrying Islamic State and drawing the obvious conclusion. Um, Tessa, it, it is an extraordinarily bleak thought, and it is always difficult to imagine that things in Afghanistan could actually get worse, but we've seen Islamic State constitute itself as a geographical entity amid a failed state once. Is it beyond the realms of possibility they could do it again in at least some of Afghanistan? Well, I don't think so. I mean, it's quite interesting also to look at the differences between Taliban and IS from our perspective here. The they all look at quite extremist, Islamist fanatics. If you look at them, although they share this common Sunni Islamist ideology, they have different ideas about what they want. So the Taliban is as awful as it is, but it's trying to set up a functioning um, government in Afghanistan for Afghanistan. And IS, as we know, is sort of more this kind of global caliphate uh, um, organization um, and very, very disruptive. So the IS has, has never been really very successful in getting the roots in a permanent way into um, a country or society. But it can inflict terrible damage to everything. And you know, of course, what my solution to this is. What is that? Get the kids that are female back to school, mm -hmm. let the women study, let them have power, appoint only 100% females as everything from ministers to generals to managers. And then all these Islamist groups, <laughs> male, patriarchal, crazy people who are not good for their countries and for their populations will go away eventually. See, I, I would have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in agreeing to that, but I'm not the one that needs persuading. I know. Um, which I guess brings us, Philippe, to the knotty question of how the rest of us, should the rest of the world still care about Afghanistan, persuades anybody there to do anything. I mean, if, if we did see 
a massive upsurge in Islamic State activity and and an escalation in Islamic State's organisation, perhaps to the extent that they organise themselves in Iraq and Syria. Could we end up in the hilarious position of the world effectively going to war to defend the Taliban from Islamic State? Well, that would be something. Uh, I, I think thinking about that, it seems to be a very, very complex issue because in, in a way more complex than uh, sort of the UN and Western democracies trying to impact on, uh, say, Russian public opinion and its economy. Mm. It's very difficult. It's uh, it's a major military power. So, and we're seeing it. You know, the how uh, Western powers are extremely careful, probably in my view, too careful in addressing and helping uh, Ukraine. But in a sense, Taliban is by no means a comparable uh, country to Russia. You know, it's far uh, smaller, weaker. It doesn't have this military might. But any intervention seems to be paradoxically more more complex because it is a purely dictatorial, brutal regime which doesn't hesitate a second to harm its population. Women, as Tessa just said, and also it's a. I think half of the Afghan population now is starving and is a, is a, is a is chronically underfed. And of course, uh, there's zero democracy there. So if you can do that just by sheer force, impose your brutality and your brutal ruling on, on your people, how can you how can you impose any, any sanction? I think sanctions are there already. And in fact, sanctions are sort of increasing uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of the problems of the population. Uh, so uh, I think I'm afraid the only solution would be yet another military intervention. But immediately I would say to you, well, uh, of course, uh, uh, we've, we've been there. Uh, we've we... been there several times and the Russians also have been there. <laughs> so it's been tried uh, several times and every time in Afghanistan it ended, it ended in defeat. Because, Tessa, that is the dreadful truth about Afghanistan, which is when the Taliban were in charge in the 1990s, nobody cared until things that occurred as a consequence of their rule had an impact outside Afghanistan. Uh, and it is the case now, isn't it, that basically that was the deal that the United States struck with itself, uh, if not directly with the Taliban two years ago, just saying basically, look, you can have it back, do what you like, as long as you don't cause us any trouble. Yeah, it's all a little bit shameful, of course, Yeah, but there are no perfect solutions in international politics, as we know. And I think there's no appetite in the near future of, of any military intervention or if we would support the IS or the Taliban is a very rhetorical question. Um, I think what we can do, as Philippe just said, there's so much starvation in Afghanistan. So we should really see that we have humanitarian corridors open, that we establish who to talk to with a little bit of pressure also on what we support in Afghanistan and help them not to starve to death. Uh, Tess and Philip, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly, but now we have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. I know I've already done two of these letters about George Santos, but I'm going to do another one today. In case you've forgotten, Santos is the disgraced House representative from New York District 4, which covers a big chunk of Long Island and a little bit of Queens. Shortly after Santos was elected, it emerged that throughout his life, he had spun an extraordinary web of lies that had eventually led him to Congress. His porkies were wide-ranging in their subject matter. They covered the most fundamental aspects of Santos's biography, including his ethnic background and his education. 
And they also covered less fundamental aspects of his biography, such as his false claim to donors that he helped produce Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, a 2011 rock musical revisiting the plot of the first two movies starring Tobey Maguire. He's lied about much, much more than that. Look it up for yourself. Despite his lies, Santos has so far been able to retain his house seat, but he's become a massive distraction in Congress. Democrats love using him as a stick to beat the Republicans with. Every time we're having a conversation, we seem to be talking about George Santos, lamented Anthony Despacito, a Republican who represents a district right next to Santos's. Even though most Republicans resent Santos, most are willing to tolerate him for the sake of protecting the party's slim majority. But the six House Republicans from New York don't feel the same way. This is especially true for the four freshman Republican members, including Despacito, who won hotly contested swing seats last November. Santos has seriously harmed their chances of re-election, having angered both voters and Republican donors in New York, who are furious at having been duped. The problem for Santos's Republican opponent so far has been finding a way of effectively punishing him. But now the four New York freshman Republicans seem to have figured it out. On Tuesday, Despacito introduced two pieces of legislation that directly target Santos without mentioning him by name. The No Fortune for Fraud Act and No Fame for Fraud Resolution are both aimed at preventing House members from receiving compensation for, quote, biographies, media appearances, or expressive or creative works, unquote, if they have been convicted of financial offences or campaign finance fraud. These pieces of legislation are ingeniously designed to attack a future version of Santos. Because there's little doubt that a man as shamelessly attention-seeking and self-mythologizing as him would seek to wring every last drop out of his story's potential for monetization and publicity on leaving office. He's practically guaranteed a lucrative book deal and TV series, as well as paid speaking engagements. This legislation would prevent Santos from reaping these potentially significant rewards from his notoriety. But only if he's convicted of financial offences or campaign finance fraud. Santos is currently under investigation by state and federal authorities into crimes he might have committed, especially when campaigning for office. He's also under internal congressional investigation from the House Ethics Committee. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Speaker, has pinned Santos's fate in Congress on the Ethics Committee's findings, but that body often proves slow and toothless, so it's a bit of a cop-out. Whether or not the anti-Santos bill, as Despacito refers to it, has any material consequences for Santos, it at least signals that the New York Republicans are serious about distancing themselves from him. Will it serve to discourage future Santoses lying their way into office? I'm not so sure. No doubt Santos is looking forward to selling his story when his time as a lawmaker finally comes to an end. But I don't think that's why he did it. I think Santos's love of lying is purer than the love most people will feel towards anything in their entire lives. And it's difficult to legislate 
against that kind of passion. Henry Ree Sheridan in New York City. Thank you. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. Let's bring Tessa and Philippe back in and to France, where, despite protests, although that phrase could be used to introduce literally any item about France, senators have voted yay on President Emmanuel Macron's plan to raise France's retirement age from 62 to 64, a proposal which has occasioned widespread flinging of cafe furniture at the gendarmes, despite the fact that the new mark would still be among the the lowest pension ages in Europe. Further protests are now planned by trades unions as the Senate works to finalise the legislation. One union leader declared that the idea is to bring France to a standstill, prompting several obvious responses which this broadcaster intends to rise heroically above. Um, Philippe, has President Macron won here? He hasn't won and he could even lose big, if you like, on this because uh, things are not going according to plan. Uh, once re-elected a year ago, not even a year ago, Macron floated this uh, old project of his of reforming the pensions mm-hmm. and uh, he thought probably that he could uh, get a majority on that, probably forgetting in passing that he had lost uh, the last uh, general election, uh, his party has lost uh, the absolute majority. So he needs now support coming from uh, other uh, parties from in the opposition, uh, i.e. Les Républicains, the Sarkozy's party. And uh, that's the only support because what is uh, quite uh, serious about the situation, at least for Macron, is that there seems to be a kind of united front against uh, his reform. Uh, politically, all parties bar, uh, of course, Macron's party and uh, the Republicans were on that a little bit uh, uncertain because uh, you will, they will see where in which direction the, the, the wind is blowing. If it, things get really bad for Macron, probably they will back off. But that would be the only support that he could get because the, the left united and the far right, uh, Le Pen's party, which is now the second parliamentary group in the National Assembly, are all against it, are all advocating a return to 60 years old as a sort of retirement age. Uh, The unions, what's more, are united, which is unique. I think France, unlike Britain, which has a TUC, which is an umbrella organization, pretty united. The unions in France are fragmented along political ideological lines. They are quite weak. Uh, Contrary to receive wisdom abroad, they're weak. But they're united. It's unique. And what's more, according to opinion polls, uh, it seems that all categories of the population, with the exception probably uh, the retired people, are against the uh, reform. So there's actually no support for Macron. He doesn't have the the required majority in his own party to pass it in a National Assembly. He hasn't been able in the first reading to pass it. The Senate, which is the lower chamber, has just approved it, but the text will go back in a week time to National Assembly for second reading. And then again, there will be hundreds of amendments to the law, making sure that again, uh, there's a lot of confusion and again, possibly uh, the law can't be passed in a second reading. So it is getting very, very difficult for Macron. Uh, Tessa, we have been discussing this uh, on the Daily earlier this week, and we discussed it also on a a recent edition of The Foreign Desk, which I I commend listeners to just as soon as they're finished listening to this. But does this look, with all deference to the sensibilities of the French person sitting at this table with us, from elsewhere a bit self-indulgent? I come from a country where the pension age is 67. Uh, You come from one where it is already 65 for men, and it is going up to 65 for women as well. But see, this is it. In Austria, till today, women are being forcefully or voluntarily but retired at 60. 
So, you know, this is a peculiar thing in Europe and people are used to these early retirement ages. It's not, as, as Philippe just said, not easy to change that. And I've always sort of also myself had a certain sympathy of the idea that you um, start the day with a bottle of Cote du Rhone uh, followed by a long snooze and then <laughs> go back to a bistro for a little bit of baguette and camembert and you can also enjoy your like last 30 years of your life in a wonderful bliss of French cultural um, achievements. But of course, as you say, you know, by 2050, as the OECD predicts, 30% of the people worldwide will be aged 65 or over and somebody will have to pay for all these retired masses and that's the big problem and that's why Macron is trying what he's doing and it's not it's reasonable on a on a global economic thought level it's maybe not on a micro um, level in France but Philippe why is he having such a hard time making the case is it just as simple as people not wanting to work for another two years because the old age pension when first instituted in this country and apologies to listeners who heard me make exactly the same point earlier this week uh, it was it was extended to British people in 1909 when they were 70 years old and of good character in 1909 when the first pension was introduced, almost no one lived till they were 70. And and the settlement of the old age pension depends on the idea that most people will sort of drop obligingly dead in their mid-60s rather than go on a 30-year long holiday. The French life expectancy is 82. That's right. But I think the, the terms of the debate in France seems to be a bit different from what you get in other countries because uh, they are uh, clearly the mood is different in the sense that, for instance, the economic argument hasn't been won by Macron. That's probably of all our, of all things the most worrying thing. They are, for instance, economists. They are politicians. They are journalists who, you know, came up with a sort of a. Uh, counter plans, if you like, showing that in fact the pension scheme and retirement age uh, kept at 60, if not uh, returned to 60, would be viable. It's a political decision which would be, be required in a sense that, and, and I think that's the, the whole debate revolves around this issue of fairness. The, the, the pension reform isn't fair because the money is available, it has to be taken where it is. Notably, uh, uh, Macron is being accused by his opponent to not uh, taking the money where it is, which is, uh, you know, the, the gains made by, by, by big business and capital, and, and there could be more redistribution, and that for that reason, uh, economists have shown that the pension uh, reform doesn't need to be to be made if uh, those uh, economic measures would be taken. There's also this idea; it's more of a debate about civilization. This idea that you know, okay, when you are 62, 64, you're still relatively uh, young, but it depends on the job you occupy. That job really makes you extremely obviously and very true. Therefore, it's unfair to say to decide that everyone will retire at 64, not taking into account jobs which are, of course, more painful. The reform also is said to be unfair to women who, on the whole, because they have children, notably, mm -hmm. uh, will find it hard to get full pension when they retire because they haven't worked the required number of years. And the whole idea, it's very cultural, very French, you might say, <laughs> you know, third age, when you arrive there, you shouldn't be totally knackered, but still in a physical, mental uh, position, which enables you to start a new life, new activities. And it doesn't mean that you are going to stay on, on your on your sofa and, and watch TV. You know, you should be active, but uh, there's a condition for that, it's that you you should stop when you're still you're still fine, and and you, there's a whole thing also, lots of discussion about 
Retired people are mostly grandparents, and grandparents also help the younger generation by looking after the the, the children of their own uh, children. So, you see, that's what there's a very, very complex discussion taking place in France, and all that I think the Macron side has been hasn't been very good at at responding to it, and that's why it seems to me uh, losing the argument. Well, finally on today's show, as the world makes the most of being reconnected again, yesterday Monocle launched our new travel show, The Concierge, which guides listeners to less explored cities, revealing the best places to eat, sleep and unwind, and coming to the aid of premium business travellers and adventurous holiday hunters alike as they navigate the globe. And you can listen to that straight after you've listened to the foreign desk that I was talking about, straight after this, or actually in any order you like, I'm really not all that fussy. Um, We did want to close the show off by asking you both about passport stamps which is something i'm interested in and something i'm slightly depressed by uh, tessa first of all in that there's not as many of them as there used to be and w- when i first came to europe as a young australian idiot with a rucksack um you actually had to get a visa for almost everywhere and while that process was not infrequently extremely tedious you did often end up with a very handsome full page thing in your passport um whereas now because i have an australian passport still i at least get a little stamp with a little picture of an airplane um as i did when i came back from munich the other week but it's a sort of a lost art the passport stamp isn't it well ask all the british citizens to they have to go through passport <laughs> controls with stamps now um when they go to the european union which was formerly sort of stamp free and i think most come to regret this now um i am personally quite happy not to have many stamps in my passport because i used to have to renew my passport all the time because it was full with all these elaborate sort of russian visas israeli See, stamps american book. I, I was quite depressed to notice last time that i renewed my australian passport that they no longer do the 64 page one which i used to get for exactly that reason mm. i now just have a, a, a 32 page one like a like a normal person it's yeah. terrible Sad, isn't it? It so is. Sad. It's we really sad. Something about it's this. A book. Yeah, no, this the, little the, petition maybe. Yeah, the 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 sixty-four page passport. Once you filled up one of those, that felt like a real accomplishment. Yeah. Absolutely. But I was actually really, I was always on, on the way to somewhere to report. And then you find out you have just no space anymore for the next stamp in Uzbekistan or something. So I'm quite happy if I'm now having a slightly uh, easier time, at least within the European Union to go around. Only San Marino, actually, we should try and get um, a tourist stamp or something once in our lifetimes, because that's the only thing that we could get within the Schengen zone now. Uh, Philippe, when did you last get your passport actually stamped with a a, a satisfying thwunk of oh. whatever you call that thing they stamped them with? The last time was pre-COVID because since COVID, I think I've, I've tended to stay in Europe to travel where, as Tessa was saying, you know, as a French citizen, I don't get any stamp because, uh, uh, of course, it's uh, you, don't, you don't need that. But I think the last stamp I got while traveling outside the EU was Mexico in 2018. And uh, yes, I think uh, we. it's nice to have stamps, but it's also nice not to have to sort of request a visa, which is, as you, sa- as you were saying, a bit of a tedious exercise, a bit costly. Um, I remember, I think I don't know about all the countries, but in, in France, you know, you have your passport, which is absolutely full with stamps. And when you renew it, they keep it. So you can't even sort of... Uh, oh, that's boring often. Oh, yes. I don't know why. It's, no. it's, it's French property, even if you've paid for it. Well, I mean, that's, that's uh, technically true. Australia 
puts a big sort of uh, perforation in it saying cancelled, but lets lets you keep it. No, not 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 the French uh, government. They they take it. So really, there's always this moment of frustration when you, of course, you're happy to get your new, uh, your brand new passport, but then you have the. That is tiresome your... of them. Yes. Do, do either of you just finally have any particular favourite passport stamps? I I would like to reminisce at this point about my my visa, uh, which allowed me into Abkhazia, a country which doesn't actually exist. Is yeah. only recognised by one Very other good example. non-existent one. Personally signed by the foreign minister, it was. Yeah, and I think today you would be hard-pressed to find anyone giving you an Abkhazian stamp because mm. it's actually controlled by Russia. Oh, it pretty much was at the time, to yeah. be fair. But did you not get one? When I looked this up, I wondered if you don't have one of the Republic of Vanuatu. I've never been to Vanuatu. Because that's for an Australian, a self-respecting Australian, isn't that a little bit uh, of an embarrassment? Kind of, but I've, I've never been to Vanuatu. It's never come up. I do have one from the Cook Islands, though, weirdly, but that, as, okay. as I recall, that wasn't terribly spectacular. Yeah, because Vanuatu has a really nice, colourful one. Um, I, I, and I also, I, I do have a Taliban 1.0 visa from Afghanistan in the 90s. The entry visa goes over two pages, and then there's a separate exit visa, which takes up another page. But they didn't do any other sort of governing at all, but they were very, very keen on passport stamps. Uh, do you have any particular favourite stamps? Yes, I have a stamp which is I'm quite fond of, which is quite a historic moment. In uh, December 1989, I was in West Berlin. Oh, so that's really a, that that's period. And of course, I decided with my friends to cross the other side and to go to East Berlin. And at the time, it was still the DDR, uh, and I needed then a visa. So of course, I was uh, got that DDR. DDR uh, stamp on uh, my, my passport uh, in uh, December 1989, so just when uh, the, the wall opened. See, I, I did my backpacking as a young Australian idiot around Eastern Europe just after that, uh, so I didn't get a DDR stamp, but a lot of the Eastern European countries, though they were no longer parts of the Soviet bloc, had not yet updated their visa iconography, so they still had the red stars and hammers and sickles on them, and actually some of them quite handsome, especially the Hungarian one, as I recall. Well, and we have to be careful that the Hungarians don't go back to that. <laughs> well, yeah, on, on that uh, reminder to be careful what we all wish for, uh, Tessa Shishkovitz and Philippe Malia, thank you for joining us. You can listen to The Concierge every week, Wednesday at 1300 GMT or wherever you get your fine podcasts from. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to Tessa and Philippe and also to Henry Ree Sheridan. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamanchu. And I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening.